Welcome to Shirt Factory Center Stage, a podcast recorded at the newest century-old hotspot, the Littit Shirt Factory. Join in as the relentlessly curious co-hosts Jim Hoffer and Kim Schaller shine a spotlight on the talented performers who will entertain and energize audiences from this very stage. It's quirky. It's fun. It's a behind-the-scenes listen that you won't want to miss. And now, here's Shirt Factory Center Stage. Hi, Kim. Hey, Jim. What's up? What's up? You tell me. We're live. Well, you know, live. Live audience. Well, and this is our first time. It's with, first time I doing mean, this. Is, this is a high-wire act, don't you think? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I know, I think I, just before you came on stage here, you, I saw you taking a shot of tequila mm-hmm. to, to calm get, your nerves. To get myself calm. I mean, you weren't supposed this. to admit to that. Anyway, there's no reason to be nervous, though, because we have a really interesting guest, don't we? We do. Oh, we really do. Yeah. With a fantastic story that goes back to, well, let's go back to 1985, when our guest was 22 years old, and he decides, why not open up a music venue in the city of Lancaster? And this music venue becomes legendary because of our guest and ends up launching the careers of many great bands and hosting many national bands. Fish, Live, Greg Allman appeared there, Dickie Betts, The Ocean Blue, The Ramones, and on and on and on. And he continues to uh, make his mark on the central Pennsylvania and even East Coast music scene as the current director of the Lancaster Roots and Blues Festival. Why don't you introduce our guest? We have Rich Ruoff sitting right here with us. So. Welcome to the Shirt Factory. Well, hello, and thank you for having me, and I love the space. What nice. a beautiful room. Good. Yes. Well, we're gonna, I'm going to call you back to give you some, get some feedback on the actual venue. But I think a really good place to start, I think, is the thing that's coming up very soon, which is the Lancaster. You've got your huge festival coming up, Roots and Blues Festival. So give us the status update. How's it going with COVID? What's going on? Okay, for those who are new, uh, Lancaster Roots and Blues is an annual music festival that we hold in downtown Lancaster at multiple venues. You get a wristband and you walk from venue to venue. And we do this year, we have 80 different bands playing, a lot of national artists and regional artists, and of course, a nice smattering of local artists. There's seven venues, 10 stages. Many of the national artists are playing two shows or two different stages. So we'll have about 100 performances. You can buy a one day, two day, or three day ticket. It's the middle of October this year, October 15, 16, and 17. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Give us an update on COVID. How has COVID wreaked havoc on this so far? Well, interesting. I mean, it was kind of a guessing game when it would get clear. And in the spring, it looked like, okay, we have a vaccine. People will take the vaccine. It'll get better and better and better. And it did. And so ticket sales were going out, just going gangbusters. I mean, I think the principal reason is because I booked the best festival yet as far as the names of the bands. We have some really big artists coming. So early ticket sales were great. They suggested we were going to have a phenomenal festival. And then about midsummer, the fourth spike of COVID has come around to kind of bite us and really bite the people who haven't gotten a vaccine. And so ticket sales have slowed. People were nervous. How are we going to handle it? What are we going to do? Do we want to be in a big crowd? And then the industry has come up with a system where it's become the industry standard. It's just in the last few weeks, it's really kicking in. And it's working. 
And it's uh, you either have to have proof of a vaccine or a proof of a negative test within 48 hours of attending. They just did it this weekend with the Gret Deden Company in Philadelphia at the where the Phillies play at the big stadium. It was sold out and everybody had their vaccine or a proof of negative test. So, Rich, let me ask you, you talk about there's going to be 80 artists here, correct? Yes. Now, I know I'm learning just how much time goes into booking one act. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I am surprised how much work goes into it. I mean, you must have this huge staff, right? That's helping you. I mean, you, you're booking 80, 80 artists. I mean, yeah. How do you do that? So my history, of course, is running Chameleon Club. And in big years, we would do 300 different bands. And that was all me. So I would listen to all the demo tapes that I received. And, and, and we're talking going back to the 80s that they were literally cassette tapes. And then, and then they became CDs. And it wasn't really to the 2000s that they would send digital links. But uh, I, I listened to a lot of music, a lot of bad music. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and there some good ones. And so the good ones really stand out when you listen to hours of bad music. It's like, oh, that's actually a good one. We'll go for that one. And then during doing that, I booked about 4,000 bands in years past. I developed a relationship. The interesting thing, the agencies, there's only a handful of agencies really that matter. And they're based in L.A. and New York and London. And the young agents who are responsible for secondary markets or tertiary markets like Lancaster, PA, when I was a young club owner, we became friends. Well, now those agents are all senior agents and, and some of them own their own agencies or run their own agencies. And uh, so when I decided to put on this festival seven years ago, I reached out to them and they said, hey, you know, either they'll deal with me directly or they'll put me in touch with the people who would be perfect for what we're doing. So that was easy as a no-brainer. I don't really take submissions. I don't ask for submissions. I get them. I listen to them. But I don't hunt up people. Uh, I find them. Uh, and I have a network of people all over North America who see music. And they just message me and they say, hey, we just saw the real deal you know, here in North Dakota. You got to watch these guys. And then I will follow it. And stuff sticks in my head. And so when I'm ready for a band, I just call them or I, I email them and I say, hey, we're doing a festival. We'd love to have you come do it. And uh, we get them in. And uh, that's it's a pretty quick process once I decide to target you. So here's your promo opportunity. Who are you most excited about coming up for this year's festival? I'm not just being coy, but that's a question like saying, who's your favorite child? <laughs> Mine's Carly. I have one child. So. <laughs> well, that's, hey, that's easy. easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this year, because I did such a broad expanse of artists. I'm really excited about Delvon Lamar and the, uh, it's an organ trio and they're based out of Seattle, Washington, mm -hmm. almost no vocals, but these guys can groove and, uh, I highly recommend them. They're not even going to be on the main stage, but they're doing two of the, uh, the mid-level stages, but just great. It's a musician's band. Like if you like music, you got to see these guys, Delvon Lamar organ trio. And then, uh, you know, the, on the course, the main stage, you know, I mean, we have, Elvin Bishop and Charlie Musselwhite. And these are two of the oldest people at the festival this year. Elvin Bishop has been around forever. He's played with everybody, guitar player. And Charlie Musselwhite also been around forever. He's played with everybody as a harmonica player. Now these two old legends are touring together. So far, we've had no cancellations due to COVID. I know these guys are nervous because they're older. We'll see, but we're hoping they stick. Joan Osborne is coming. Oh, Ooh, nice. Fabulous singer. Yep. And, uh, oh, G-Love and... People, most people know him as G-Love and Special Sauce out of Philadelphia. That's a trio. But G-Love is just this year introducing a new band called G-Love and the Juice. And it's an eight-piece band of A-list players. And we have them at the festival. So people who follow G-Love are just going to go nuts over what he's bringing. 
And uh, there, there's one word. I mean, there's, there's a lot more, but there's a young girl named Vela. And this is how things change in this modern marketplace. She released a, a TikTok video, I believe, last November. And it went viral overnight and a million people loved it. And then she did some videos and a million people loved it and millions more. And it kept snowballing. She got a record deal. And then by January, she was recording music. And, and this is a girl who's never toured in a bar. She's 17 years old at the time. But she's a cross between Janis Joplin and Amy Winehouse. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I've seen enough new talent to know that unless she does something really stupid with her personal life, she's going to be really successful, like hugely successful. And we're going to, her first tour ever will be this fall and she's coming to the festival. So is there any criteria that you have besides, well, I think they're good. I mean, is there anything that you're looking for every time you book? Is there a sort of a common thread? Yeah. What is that? It's got to move me. I mean, it, so good is a relative term. I mean, I'll get demos and I'll see bands that are technically clean and they can play their instruments and a music teacher might say, oh, that's very good. But there's no vibe or feeling. It, it's got to just move me. And, and that's, that's just the bottom line. I read something somewhere where you said that you like to book the Road Warriors. What did you mean by that? The Road Warriors? Yeah. yeah. So a challenge, like Lancaster actually has a ton of good musicians. Uh, and guys that would, would almost be considered A-list musicians, but they don't play enough. And they don't play enough with each other as a band to be just value. Whereas the bands that come to Lancaster Roots and Blues from, from the national artist level, they're doing 100 or 150 shows a year, obviously, pre-COVID. Uh, maybe 200 shows a year. It's, it's an insane amount of work. But like, if you read the Rolling Stones, like Keith Richards' uh, biography on the Rolling Stones, and uh, Charlie Watts, uh, for those who are listening, just passed away today. So that's a, yeah. that's a sad and a big, big thing. I grew up with the Rolling Stones. So anyway, Keith Richards described how the Rolling Stones played 900 shows in the first three years that they were together, which is just crazy. But they've had a pretty good run. And when you play together a lot, you breathe together. You're in sync. And it's not just about being tight. It's about it's like the heart is beating together and people in the room and the audience can feel it. And it's an honest vibe. And that's the kind of music I go after. You know, it's not slick. It's not pop. It's just got a raw sound to it that comes from the heart and has lots of soul. You know, and I think we can all talk about the number of stages and the number of bands, but the economic impact that you've had, this festival has on our region You've actually had that calculated, haven't you? Or it's been done so by the county? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's formulas, and it, of course it grows every year. It all depends on, obviously, the final number of participants as far as attendees. If we hit our goals of 15,000 this year, which is a realistic number, COVID might shake that up a little bit, we will exceed well over $3 million in economic impact. That includes hotel rooms. Right. That includes restaurants. Even, even the downtown businesses just jam. But when I say it's not just downtown, we fill the outer rings of hotels all through the county. Some people make it a deal. They come back to visit Lancaster. They grew up here and they meet their friends here. And then we sell tickets all over North America. We just sold, like I mentioned the other day, to Canada and California and Chicago and Florida and all up and down the East Coast. And they come in and they come in on Friday and they Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Mm-hmm. It's a driver. It's yeah, a real driver. Yeah. No question. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's a fun crowd, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. <laughs> 
So the history of music festivals is kind of littered with a, a lot that failed. Yeah. I mean, these are big, moving music machines. Many parts, many unpredictable things can happen from weather to people just don't show up in, in the numbers that you thought to, I mean, incredibly unpredictable. And I know probably with each year, this is something you have to grapple with. And I know that early on that you ran into some issues with this and ended up having some financial difficulties with one of the festivals and owing some vendors and musicians money. How do you deal with that? I mean, how are you? It's a big risk. It's well, big yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, but really going back to running the club, you go through weeks or months even, or even whole quarters where you're losing money and you always know it's going to come back around. And so you just have to take care of people and then they come back around to you. And every band has made money and every band has lost money. Every promoter has made money. Every band, every promoter has lost money. And the ones who stay in it for the long haul, they settle their debts and I have, and everybody's paid. And all those bands want to come back. They, they understand that these things happen in real life. It's interesting. If you read like, probably the, one of the biggest festivals in the world right now is Coachella. And that's out in the desert in California, I guess near Palm Springs, a town called Coachella. Uh, and it's a big deal. And they'll do 100,000 people a day, two weekends in a row. So 400,000 people. Obviously a monstrous festival. I read an article in the New Yorker, I believe. And it was an interview with the founder of that. And they lost so much money in the first five years. Uh, and there are literally bands from the first couple of years that still have not been paid. Uh, and yet 30 years later, it's one of the biggest festivals in the world. He kept going and going. And the reason, I guess, those original bands haven't been paid is they broke up and it's hard to pay nobody. So, <laughs> like, it's, but it happens. And also, Tracy Allison, who's the operations director of the, of the club, she's developed a relationship with uh, the club, the, uh, the festival. You can tell I'm going old school. And she had just developed a relationship with uh, some of the people who work at the uh, Newport Blues and Jazz Festival, which is the oldest, it's the granddaddy of all festivals. It's not the biggest because it's in Newport, Rhode Island, but it's just classic. And I mean, going back to when Ray Charles was young, he played there and Bob Dylan and Mavis Staples plays there. It's just continuous Lake Street dive. They just do great music. They have great taste in music. The director is 95 years old now, but it's going up and down for them. I mean, they were close to bankruptcy several times, you know, where they lost so much money on a given year. But they keep doing it. And, uh, and now it's actually been running profitable now for the last 14 years. So, but it only took them like 40 years to get to that point. So, so it's a high risk financial business. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing the music business to get rich, you're probably in the wrong business. So, and it's all on your shoulder. You have had, and I, I kind of want to, we've talked about right now, let's go back to 2020. And you have had, I think of what you've carried around in terms of stress in your life, not only putting this festival together, but personally. You have really been through a tough time. So whatever you're willing to talk about, I think they would be really interested in hearing. Well, like four years ago, I had a little personal, I had a health issue. I had a heart attack, actually two in a row. Uh, and uh, if, I mean, you may look at me now and say, oh, there's a guy who's out of shape. But actually, I was always in reasonably good shape. Uh, and uh, it's an, it was inherited. My father had it. My grandfather had it. He actually died from it. But, you know, got some stents and, and now I take all the medication so I'm fine or you know as fine as you can be but then right after that while running the festival trying to get it rolling my wife developed brain cancer Claudia and uh, it was glioblastoma which if you know cancers is as bad as it gets there's no positive prognosis for that 
So I became her caregiver, and they, they told us 12 to 15 months, and we stretched it to 15 months. So that was, if you've ever been a caregiver, yeah, I think you can appreciate what's involved with that, especially with brain cancer, because you lose a lot of function uh, in the last few months. It was very challenging. And you're a father of three. Yeah, I we mean, have three, three sons. Three sons with everything going on. Honestly, your ability to just keep moving forward is really impressive. Well, well, thank you. I mean, it's to me, it's logistics, <laughs> raising children, putting on concerts. It's just <laughs> yeah, you know, it's all, <laughs> life is logistics. I mean, obviously, I throw a little love in there too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so let's lighten it a little bit. I, okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the chameleon. The chameleon club. Sure, chameleon club. Yeah. So you're 22 years old back in 1985. I mean, how did you come up with the idea to start a music venue? Your father had a music club, didn't he? Oh, that's very good. My parents did. So when I was a little kid, six, seven, eight years old, my father had a regular corporate job, but he inherited some money from his parents. He used to be a musician, but you're talking back in the 50s, and he played in bands and jazz bands and he was a piano player, and this was back in the day when they would lug the upright piano and put it in the back of a big panel van, drive to the gig, pull it out, the thing would be out of tune. I mean, anyway, it was just work. There was no electronic keyboards back then. So he missed music, and he, so they bought a club. They built a club from a, an old warehouse uh, right on Keller Avenue, right on the edge of Lancaster between Manhattan Township and the city. And uh, it was called Hullabaloo, which was actually a franchise club, so they bought a local franchise. Right. But he really got into it. And so here I'm a little kid getting to hang out backstage, and I got to see some great bands. I got to see certainly all the hot local bands, but then they did some national bands coming through too. And it's interesting. Uh, I mean, they even developed a, a television show with it, uh, and they used to. I used to go to the studio with a bus full of dancers as they would play the latest music. And how old are you at this time? Seven, eight years old. But I got to tell you, from then when they when they sold that club, because it was a lot of work too. So they sold it, and it didn't last much longer after they sold it. Till I decided to open Chameleon, I wasn't going, oh, I can't wait to open my own nightclub someday. I really did not even think about music that much. I mean, I had a record collection, and I listened to a lot of good music, but it was never like a goal of mine to open a club. But after I turned 21 in Lancaster, and uh, I had a girlfriend, and we would go to bars, and we would see things, uh, and it, was, it wasn't a really happening scene. It was typical of a town the size of Lancaster in the center part of a state like Pennsylvania. So we would travel to Philly or Baltimore once in a while and catch stuff. And it was interesting. The uh, stadium arena shows didn't really excite us. It was the stuff that you saw in the smaller venues that we, we liked the intimacy of it. So I kept saying, I said, I'm going to open a club. I'm going to open a club. And then finally, my girlfriend got tired of hearing that. And she goes, look, I'm moving to Florida. She goes, if you open a club, call me. I'll come back. So uh, she left. And then I'm, I just actually, there was a room sitting behind a local restaurant called Tom Payne's Restaurant on North Queen Street in Lancaster. And at the time, it was probably one of the, the fine dining restaurants in town. And I knew they had a back room sitting there. I had seen a couple shows in the back room. Uh, his, the owner was older and his adult kids had run a couple shows in there, rock shows, blues shows. But they weren't serious about it. They didn't do it regular. And I had been sitting there uh, quiet for about a year. So I, I knew it was sitting there, so I just approached the owner of Cold. I walked in, I was 22, and I said, hey, this is what I want to do. And uh, for whatever reason, he took a shine to me, and uh, he says, all right, well, give me money. <laughs> so, and it was just a rent. It was a, a rent-the-room kind of thing, which isn't technically legal. So we called it a management contract. But the room had a stage like this, and tables and chairs and a bar, 
and it had four old paint cans that were converted into lights, light fixtures, like gallon paint cans pointing down. And uh, it was all I needed to get started. So I called my girlfriend in Florida and got her back here, uh, and we opened it together. We we painted it, you know, did, cleaned it up. I started with five thousand dollars, enough to pay the first month's rent, book the first few bands, stock the coolers with beer, and open. And literally, if we had had three or four bad shows in a row, that would have been the end of it. And uh, it worked. There were people, I, in fact, there's a guy who just came in to watch this. <laughs> and uh, he was one of the people who came in the early days. And I think he, he would uh, confirm that uh, this was, uh, people responded to it immediately. There was a void that need, was being filled. And so literally, it made money in the first night the first week, the first month, the first year. It wasn't until later in life that I realized that most businesses don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, it's easy. Just open the doors and you'll make money. <laughs> right. But, you know, we got lucky. And like I said, filling the void, that's mm-hmm. the key. And why the Chameleon Club? Where'd the name come from? Oh, no, that was my girlfriend. Her name was Alexandra Brown. Probably still is. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, no, she's since gotten married. I, I can't remember her last name. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alexandra. And uh, uh, she was reading a, a novel called Chameleon. I think it was like a detective novel, maybe. Okay. But we realized that we liked a variety of music. So changing colors on a chameleon, changing styles right. of music. And that's where that came from. Right. Because that's really what you did. The diversity of offering that you had there was just incredible. Yeah. And so when I say fill the void, not just for the city lines, we're talking the region of Pennsylvania. There was the popular music at the time was, uh, wow. I mean, there was... The bands you would see, like in a Holiday Inn lounge, there was a lot of that going on. Fun dance bands, but, you know, pretty limited repertoire. And then as far as rock and roll, Central Pennsylvania was a hair metal band market, and that just wasn't my thing. Uh, I had long hair. I just didn't, you know, (laughs) I wasn't into metal bands. And uh, so the original business card said blues, jazz, and rock and roll. And we, you know, rock and roll included things like rockabilly and like it was a little bit of everything. And then there was new wave was a thing back then. So we started booking some new wave bands. And then later it morphed into alternative bands by the late 80s into the early 90s. Uh, and, and then we had a huge run through the 90s. Mm-hmm. So where does the village come into play here? Because they were another very popular nightclub. Did you see them as competition? Were they? No, I, I was filling the void that they didn't cover. So. The village was established. They were the big bar in the community. They did music, geez, six nights a week. Sometimes they would do the same band Tuesday through Saturday. So, you know, that alone was something I never did. You know, we'd mix it up. We weren't open seven nights or six nights, but we wouldn't do the same music every night. They almost never did an opening band. And I used, so we'd have a headliner and an opener. And that that technique helps you establish and give work to local artists, to develop their craft, which is a real thing because you need to keep feeding the beast. You got to keep supplying new bands because people get tired of the same band over and over. And uh, John, I think it was John Petunas, was one of the original owners of the club. And I hope I'm not mixing his last name up with his uh, cousin. But uh, he gave me a great compliment years later. He said, you know, because the village was run by the same guys for like 50, 60 years. Well, it's the longest running club in America by the same family, over 60 years now. And he said, clubs have come and gone in our market, but you're the only one who ever heard us. And he wasn't being mean about it. He was, it was a compliment. And, uh, you know, I didn't try to hurt him. We didn't set out to hurt the village. 
We just, uh, we do what we do. They do what they do. And we got more people in the town. That's for sure. But was it a different kind of music that you were putting on? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they did a lot of cover bands. I did touch on cover bands, but that was a big focus of what they did. Again, more pop oriented or hair band oriented. Flashy lights were a key part of that. Yeah. And your focus was original bands. Original yeah. Original music. bands. Right. Though, you know, even when I dabbled in the cover bands, I think we got really, really good ones. Like, so I think, do you think people would think that Live was the biggest band to come out of the Chameleon Club? Yeah, that's, would you? That's think a fair that? assessment. Yeah, I mean, literally, they were high, they just graduated high school when they started playing the club. Uh, so you know, they're eighteen years old, and they started. I think the first gig was in June of nineteen eighty nine, and I don't always get it right, but I knew the instant I heard them. I mean, they they were literally just high school kids, and. We did a series of all-age shows on Sunday nights. We didn't serve alcohol on Sunday back in the day. And uh, so we would do two or three high school or college-level bands. Uh, and it would be mostly teenagers that would come to these shows because the alcohol is all locked up. And it was a, it was a fun thing. So they, they played that. And, you know, I would work the front door to get the crowd in. And then I'd go upstairs to my office and do other work because most high school bands aren't that good. You know, who wants to watch that? But I was in my office working. And I could hear this band take the stage and it was, it was, it grabbed me. It literally like, oh, this is something really good. I was curious as to if you have sort of an, a memorable moment, like one that really is kind of the highlight for you from your years as the owner and operator of the chameleon, something was really electrifying to you. Yeah. And I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating because it really kept me going. The first year I had the club, one of the first national acts I did was, uh, Dickie Betts from the Almond Brothers, a guitar player. And uh, that was a big deal for a small club in a small town. The Almond Brothers had, they were huge bands through the 70s and early 80s, and then they broke up. And they sent, they later reformed and kept going. But Dickie came, and the very first show they did, and of course it sold out, which was a no-brainer. And I've mentioned this, obviously a band at that level, professional musicians will always put a good show on. But even professional musicians have a great night. And this was a great night. I mean, it was a magical night. Uh, the band was playing outside of itself. And they get done with the, the show, and the crowd was just going crazy. But Dickie Betts grabs him by the arm. He doesn't know me. I'm just this young promoter. And he goes, take me out for a beer. So I took him downstairs to the other rest to the restaurant. It was a nice, quiet bar. And we sat there, and we're drinking. And he's talking to me, and he goes, I haven't played like that in years. And I did wow. not doubt him at all because it was that kind of night. And uh, he looks at me. Now, if you know the history of the Almond Brothers, Dwayne Almond was the other guitar player in the band. He died in a motorcycle accident, I believe, in 1971. But Dickie goes, when I play that well, I just want to look over and hand the lead back to Dwayne. Jeez. And uh, that was, you know, I got chills, and I still oh, get yeah. that chills telling that story. But I'm like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. This is That I gotta, would keep you going for a I got to repeat this. Yeah. And, and uh, I think... Over time, we have repeated it time and time again with so many great artists. So let's open up questions for the audience to ask. If there's anyone who, have, who has any questions, you can go to this mic right here. Not a question, more of a memory. And it's something that I saw several times at the chameleon, the old chameleon. And I thought, wow, I hope Pam and I can be like that someday. But it was the, the vision, the image of of your mom and dad dancing, cutting up a rug there to uh, Eric Shout and Sheridan and the Uptown Rhythm Kings. Oh, right. And I'm, I remember watching them and saying, 
wow, those old people are having such a wonderful time. <laughs> I, my hope and prayer is that someday Pam and I can be out there like that, <laughs> cutting it up and shaking it up like that. But it was a, it was a great memory, and they were, they were great folks. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. yeah. So Thank you, Rich. my parents loved to dance, and uh, they did come out once in a while. And, and the Uptown Rhythm Kings, as was mentioned, they were a jump and swing band. Uh, and Eric Shelton Sheraton was the lead singer, and he was just a character, uh, an amazing performer, so much fun. And I remember one time, uh, one of my bartenders and I went down to see them play in Washington, D.C. in their home club. And uh, it was, you know, we thought, well, we'll go dance, you know, because we never get to dance because we're always working. And we started to go out and dance. And all of a sudden, all these like professional swing dancers came out on the dance floor and like, they were throwing each other around. They're like, okay, we're just going to go sit by the bar and watch because it was, it was amazing. Hi, Mitch. I'm wondering, did you ever play an instrument? Yeah, that's funny. You should ask. No, I was a drummer. So, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. No, I, very I, I, I dabbled in drums. I wasn't very good at it. And that's why I pay other people to play. And you've talked about some of your successes. Did you ever have an incident either with the Chameleon Club or with the Roots and Blues where you saw a band, heard a band, and thought, what was I thinking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, you can look back. And, of course, when we highlight the great stuff, that's because we're ignoring all the bad stuff. So as a promoter, when you pay a band to play and they're awful and you're standing there and you're watching everybody in the room get up and leave, that sticks in your head. It really sears in your head. And you learn how to discern, okay, that's not going to work. And not just with that band in particular, but then when you start to hear certain patterns of like in demos or, or you see a live video, you're like, yeah, nope, I'm never hiring that kind of band. And it's not necessarily a style thing. It's, a, it's just a, the top end ability is just not there. So, yeah, and we'll talk about the good stuff. <laughs> you know, it, it's so much easier, I mean, I would think today to vet these bands because all you have to do is go on YouTube or Google the name of the band. I'm a big, big fan of YouTube. I, you know, it, it, I know it might seem limiting to some people, but you can catch a lot. I love watching live performances. And I can tell, even going back to when I did the, the demo, demo route, listening uh in an office with no visuals i can tell really quickly you know i, I got it down yeah. to a minute maybe two and it, you can see it in videos and also you know i'm also a numbers guy so if i see somebody's got a video and it's only been out for three months and they got two million views that's usually a good sign that somebody likes them what a great resource that you certainly didn't have back in your yeah. early booking yeah. days yeah so if you would give one piece of advice, I mean, Jim is, this is his dream and his booking. If you, and you're the, the premier booker in our region, what would be one piece of advice you would give him on how to really book music? Yeah. Don't drink all your product. Uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> that's, well, not, that's a not to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Seriously. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, here's the thing, whether you book a great band or an average band, people got to know about it. If no one knows that the band's here. You you have the best bands in the world, but the word's got to get out. So half your battle is going to be promotion. And then certainly you should book what you like because you got to be in the room with them. It's so much different, though. It's easier to sell if you're excited about the band because people can hear it in your voice. Maybe you only convince two people that you're running into town and and lit it during the week. Hey, we got this band coming this Saturday. You got to come see them. And they finally and they come. But then the word of mouth is going to be the snowball, assuming that you are correct. And the band does play well. And the people who came like them, it just keeps going from there. And then, it's, and then it becomes a cycling thing. 
how often do you bring back a band? If you have a great night, you're oh, going to do it again next week. No, you don't. <laughs> Six weeks, two months, uh, allow it to simmer and bring it back, and, and you cycle them back every two months. And then in that process, you're looking for other good bands. And ultimately, you're going to end up with eight or ten bands that do well here. And then, then you slot in the occasional touring national, Carsey Blanton, or something like that. And uh, I mention that because I believe she's playing here soon. She is playing here in November. There you go. Yep. Uh, she's a great artist. So and she was originally from Philly, and now she's based out of New Orleans. Do you think Chameleon Club is ever coming back? What is your prediction on that? The space is there. It's for sale. And I think Kim, you ought to buy it. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Not happening. We have a yeah. question. Hi, Rich. Thanks for being here. I grew up going to the Chameleon Club. Me in too. The 80s, <laughs> and so it was an incredible outing for us when we were in college and could come back. And so I was one of those people that came with my friends and we all hung out at the Chameleon Club. I'm just interested in knowing, you know, how, were you thinking about building a brand at that point or you had a certain caliber that you talked about, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about sure. brand building if you were thinking about that. It, it, it is. It is absolutely a thing, a brand building. So, and Jim, you're going to have that here. You're going to, it's going to be, I mean, our brand was a diversity of music which is actually a more expensive brand to develop because, you know, the hard challenge is, you know, say one night you have a folk band and you have your folk crowd. Well, some guy wants to come in and see uh, a rockabilly band and he's disappointed. He said, oh, I'm not going to that place anymore. So they got, you got to make sure that you're edu constantly educating and that they understand that this is those, you know, it's like a movie theater. Some movies suck, some are good, some are what you want to see. And people have to understand that about your venue as well. But yeah, branding is everything, and uh, I think I'm pretty good at it. I, I think uh, the Roots and Blues Festival is getting branded well, uh, and that's there's a long-term goal for that. We want to become one of the best festivals in America, and I think we're heading in the right direction. Well, Rich, listen, thank you so much. I, thank you for having me. Oh, are you kidding? And you know, yeah. good luck with the, the Roots and Blues Festival. That's October 15th, 16th, and 17th, correct? Yep, that's that's 2021 for those listening to this recording in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's coming on us fast and, uh, you know, I wish you the best great weather and, and all of that and, um, really appreciate it. I mean, you really are, you're the music man. That's how I see it. Well, thank uh, you so much. And I wish you all the luck here. You built a beautiful thank venue. You. Thank you very much. Thanks everybody. And while you're thinking about it, go to where you get your podcasts and subscribe and give us a review. Visit our website, lititshirtfactory.com. Join our mailing list and you will get updates, event info, and lots of cool stuff. Follow us on our social media channels, Instagram and Facebook at lititshirtfactory. And don't forget, come have a beer and a bite to eat here at Collusion, 5 Juniper Lane, Lititshirtfactory, seven days a week. <laughs>